Dear friends, I remember distinctly as a young man when my dad would take us out into the woods to cut down trees uh, to bring home uh, 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 logs to burn in our fire in the, in the home. And it struck me often as a young man when my dad was cutting down a tree, especially if the tree was, was more dead, that it, it seemed that he would cut and he would cut. And some of the trees he cut down were very large. And, and as we waited for this tree to fall, it seemed like the, the, the tree would reach a point when it, was, when it was being cut, and suddenly there would be this loud breaking sound, this loud almost explosion in the middle of the tree, this loud pop, when it seemed like the back or the heart of the tree was broken. And then we knew it was just a matter of time until that tree would go over. And, and sometimes we would listen for that. And we knew when we heard that first crack, that tree was coming down. And, and of course, we, we love to watch those trees crash down. We didn't like very much having to carry off all the brush and gather in all the logs, but we sure liked watching it come down. And it was a, an amazing sight. Well, that's really the picture that you have to have in your mind as we come to our text this morning. These, these mighty trees standing and also these trees being cut down. So let's start in Isaiah 10 and try to understand the context of what's happening in this passage and, and then see the picture of this tree that God gives us and how it ends in Isaiah 11 and verse 1. So in verses 10 through 4, Isaiah 10, and verses 1 through 4, you have God giving us and outlining the sin of Israel. Right? You see that there is, in verse 1, those who enact evil statutes. They deprive the needy of justice, in verse 2. They rob the poor of their rights. They spoil the widows and the orphans. And then God says, in verse 3, that question at the end of verse 3, to whom will you flee for help? And in verse 4, those dreadful words, in spite of all this, so in spite of all the punishment that God will bring upon his people, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. Now that hand is stretched out not in mercy, but in judgment. One translation said his fist, his fist, is still raised up to strike. It's not a hand stretched out in mercy. It's a hand stretched out in judgment. And then in verse 5, we have God's punishment. This is how God will punish his people. And so if you read in verse 5 with me, it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Now you mothers have a wooden spoon in your kitchen that you use to mete out punishment upon your children or some other rod of correction. And God also has a rod. And it is the king, the nation, the armies of Assyria. And so here it is. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. And in verse 6, God says, I'm going to send that rod against a godless nation. And now that's the children of Israel that he's talking about. The godless nation is his own people. I'll send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury. And you see the punishment that he's going to bring upon them. Now look at verse 7. And here you see, really, there's, there's so much theology in these verses. And of course, I'm not going to go into that now. But there's so much theology about God's sovereignty and man's action and how those two fit together. Look what it says in verse 7. Yet it... So that is the rod of God's anger, the the nation of Assyria and and their leader. 
yet it does not so intend. The nation of Assyria did not go against Israel, thinking they were going to give Israel a beating for being wicked and for breaking covenant with God. They knew nothing of that. Right? Verse 7, Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations, to plunder, to take back much treasure, to capture people and captives and slaves. That's their idea, right? Just like every other nation with, a, with their leaders and, and the thugs that, that follow them, right? They, that like the, the, and we see in the, the, the nation of Russia today, right? They don't intend to be God's rod, the, the rod of God's anger. Verse 8, the nation of Assyria boasts about its princes. Verse 9, it boasts about its past conquests, right? How, how successful it has already been. Verse 10, it talks about the graven images of other nations. None of them were able to stop him. What makes you think that the graven images of Jerusalem or Samaria will be able to stop him? In verse 11, he resolves he's going to do to Jerusalem and to Samaria. Jerusalem being the capital of the two tribes in the south, Samaria being the capital of the ten tribes in the north. And uh, he's going to do all this to these nations and nobody will be able to stop him. And verse 12, again, we go back to God's perspective. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work, in other words, his work of judgment, his work of discipline, on Mount Zion, Mount Zion is Jerusalem, and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. And again, you see the boast of the king of Assyria in verses 13 and 14. But again, there again, you you see, uh, dear friends, how even though God orchestrated the events of history such that the nation of Assyria was raised up by him for the purpose of bringing punishment and discipline on his own people, that yet God says he's going to punish Assyria Right? He says that in verse 12. I'm going to punish the arrogant heart of Assyria for what they've done to my people. Now, there's something of a mystery there, isn't there? There's something of a mystery, and I think maybe we can somewhat understand it, right? When we understand that God's decree and his orchestrating all the events of history is a secret to us, isn't it? But we know that every sparrow in the sky, every hair of our head, is under God's control. Nothing Nothing happens in this world without the will of God. Even the evil plans and plots of the king of Assyria. And yet, of course, the king of Assyria is not aware of that. He stepped out to do wickedly. And God is going to punish him and hold him responsible for his actions. Now, of course, so so much more could be said on that. But in verse 15, we continue. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Now, here, my friends, you have... Really, the prophet and and really God himself taunting and mocking the king of Assyria. That's what this is. This is not much different than Elijah. Remember when he mocked the prophets of Baal because they couldn't bring the fire down to consume the altar. But in verse 15, God mocks with the king of Assyria. He says, you can also think, by the way, of Psalm 2, right? He will laugh, right? Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Again, you see how God is mocking the king of Assyria for thinking that the axe is anything, right? We often say in our, in our world, right, guns don't kill people. People do. Well, this is the same kind of thought. 
God saying, Assyria, you're just the axe in my hand that I'm using to accomplish my purposes. Do you think you're anything at all? You're just a tool. Right, again, even in our own day, right, none of us wants to be known as a, you know, just a tool of somebody else. And yet that's exactly what Assyria is. Is the saw, verse 15, to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club, wielding those who lift it. And yeah, you're meant to smile when you read that. As if the axe would pick up a person and do something with the person. That's how foolish the king of Assyria is. To think that the axe could pick up a person and do something with it. No, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's absurd, of course. The axe, the saw, the tool, the hammer in our hands, right there, it's nothing. It's the person wielding that tool that is everything. Well, then we come in verse 18 to the, the picture that we began the sermon with today. And God says to a king of Assyria, and he that is in God will destroy the glory of his forest. So here for the first time then, we have this picture of a forest with mighty trees. And of course, the forest here represents the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria was the most powerful nation at that time. There was no nation that could challenge it. All the boasting that Assyria did in this chapter is true. No nation could stand up against the juggernaut, the army, the, 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 the unstoppable army of Assyria. It was like a mighty forest with tall trees. He will destroy, God will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And verse 19, and the rest of the trees of his forest, in other words, the rest of the trees that are left that he doesn't cut down, will be so small, so sickly, so insignificant, why even a child could write them down. Even a child could count them. If you gave a child a, a clipboard and a pencil, it could go through. Even a child that barely knew how to count. Right? And again, it's all figurative language here, isn't it? In other words, the, the nation of Assyria will be such a trifle. It will be so insignificant when God is finished with them. Then the, the passage shifts a bit. And in verse 28, we go again to Assyria as a mighty forest. And look at all the conquest. The king of Assyria has come against Ayath, and these are all cities. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he's deposited his baggage. They've gone through the pass. Geba, Ramah, Gibeah, Galim, Laish, Anathoth, all these cities, one after another, is falling before the king of Assyria. Nobody can stand before this incredible army. All of them are defeated. And then the king of Assyria stops. He halts at Nob. He shakes his fist at Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. And now the chapter changes radically, doesn't it? It changes in verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. And so here we return again to that same picture of the forest. God's going to come. He's going to cut those trees down. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down. And those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Now you look out over the forest of what once was these tall and mighty trees, this incredible, impressive forest. And what's left? Do you see it there? It's just all a field of stumps. Old, rotting, dead stumps. 
testifying to the once great glory of this nation. The nation of Assyria was once so powerful. Just like these forests, right? If you go to California and you see these massive redwood trees, but even around here, when you see these huge oak trees and these large elms and all these different trees standing there, right? And you're impressed. Why? What a... Well, I just had a tree in my backyard some time ago and the DeYoung, Mr. DeYoung came and cut it down and why that stump was this big. And when, the, when he cut down, he, he had maybe a 20-foot section and he cut that section down and it hit the yard and left a trench. Such a heavy thing that was that when it fell just that much, it, le- it left a ditch right in my backyard so hard that it hit the ground and so heavy it was. But now, just a stump. Just a stump. There's nothing left of that tree except the stump to tell us that it was once there. Now you can imagine, my friends, that as the children of Israel would read this, right? And this is my second point, right? These stumps, Isaiah 10 and verse 33. As the children of Israel uh, would read something like this. By the way, this was long before Israel went into exile. Almost, almost over 100 years before Israel actually was taken into exile. So at first they probably read this with some degree of disinterest. I don't really care. Everything's going fine. We're quite wealthy now. But you can imagine that when they were in exile, that when those days came, and when they picked up this old prophecy of Isaiah, and they read about this, they must have been very encouraged to read about what God was going to do to the massive nation and massive army of Assyria, and to Babylon as well. You can apply the same truth to the nation of Babylon. And they would have done so. They would have been rejoicing in God's power and his might. But I wonder how much they would have rejoiced if they kept reading. Look what it says in verse in chapter 11 then and verse 1. Chapter 11 and verse 1, then a shoot, so imagine a little sprout, a little plant, will spring or will spring up, will grow from the stem or the stump of Jesse. Now what's this, my friends? As Israel would look out at the nation of Assyria and see it laid low by the judgments of God, they would see these mighty tall trees cut down and nothing left but a whole field of stumps. But then they look a little closer and every Israelite would have known what this meant. And they see the stump of Jesse. What? Did God cut down the stump of Jesse too? I'm sorry, not the stump, the tree, the mighty tree that was Jesse, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, in all its glory, in all its majesty, with all its power. And what's left of it? Just a stump. And again, Israel reading this when it was first written would have been like, well, we're still a tall tree. Lay this aside, I don't need this. But when they came into exile, when their children and their children's children came into exile, Now they understand the truth of this prophecy. Because as they sit there in Babylon, in exile, what do they see? In their mind's eye, they see the mighty tree of Jesse cut down to a stump. They see all their hopes, all the hopes that they had pinned on the house of Jesse. And no doubt they also thought about the promise that God made to David, that of the seed of David, there would never cease to be a descendant of David sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. And where's the throne of Jerusalem now, they would ask themselves. It's been destroyed. It's a heap of burnt up rubble. Even the temple of Solomon has been completely burned to the ground and utterly destroyed. There's nothing left but an old dead stump. 
Oh, it's one thing, my friends, to, to rejoice and to clap our hands and to see the nations of Assyria and Babylon and all, the, the, all those who oppose God and his kingdom cut down to a stump. But to see my tree cut down to a stump. To see everything that I had pinned my hopes on cut down and left as an old dead stump. Now that's another matter altogether, isn't it? And this is where the nation of Israel is. This is where the nation of Israel is. They see nothing left of the house of Jesse, but what was left of the house of the Assyrians and the house of every other nation that raised itself up against Israel. Just an old, dead stump. Now in the third place, my friends, now we have to look a little closer, don't we? Because as they look at the stump of Jesse, do you see it there? You have to get close. You can barely see it. There's a little sprout, a little green plant growing out of that rotting stump. It often happens. I think we've all seen it, right? Out of the stump, it's a quite a, especially as it rots, it provides quite a rich environment for plants to grow. And there it is. It's not growing out of the stump of Assyria or out of the stump of Babylon or out of the stump of Edom. But out of the stump of Jesse, there is that little plant. Oh, it's so little. Why, if an animal came along and stepped on it, it would be cracked right off. There's nothing to it. Who would look at that little sprout and say, that's, that's where I'm going to pin my hopes on that little plant there. And yet, my friends, what do we read about this little sprout, this little tiny sprig coming out of this stump? Well, we read in verse 1, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This little sprout will grow and become a tree of its own. Why? And my friends, this is the secret. That little sprout, that little plant is, is, is you might say, nothing in itself. Why? The wind would blow it over. But, says verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because now that little sprout, my friends, has the spirit of God on it. And no matter how weak that little sprout might be, with the spirit of the Lord, it has more strength than any tree you've ever seen. And now let me take you to another picture, my friends. Look with me now in your mind's eye and you see the road to Bethlehem from Nazareth. And what do you see? A man and his pregnant wife, Joseph and Mary, so poor, they have nothing in themselves. Mary is, 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 the, is the, as weak as a woman can be, right, when she's pregnant. She's so weak and vulnerable. Probably didn't have a donkey. The pictures all have her with a donkey, but probably not. Probably walked the whole distance. There they go, step by step, on the way to Bethlehem. So weak, so fragile, nothing really. Nobody would look at that couple. Nobody would look at that pregnant woman and the child she carries and say, there goes the hope of Israel. No, no. If they had any hope, they would look to the tree of Jesse, the tree of David, the tree of Solomon. But every one of them knew that that tree was just an old stump. It had its day, and it was no more. 
You might say there was no hope for Israel anymore. They were under the heel of the Romans. But I ask you again, my friends, in these weeks of Advent, to look and to see that man and his wife as they trudge their way to Bethlehem. Sorry, to, to, uh, to Nazareth. What, what an amazing sight that is. Just a little green plant. And yet that is the hope of Israel. Because that child that she carried, as weak as it may have been, had the Spirit of the Lord upon him. And when Jesus was born, and when he grew up, and when he came to begin to preach, we read in Luke 4, one of the very first sermons that he preached, he announced, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, my friends, Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of what we read here in Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And now Jesus says, I'm that one. I am that little green plant springing forth from the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And now I'm preaching good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, release to the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. My friends, that's that little green sprout springing from the, from the stump of Jesse. I have two points of application to make upon this. My friends, we don't often think about this in the weeks of Advent. But the preaching of Advent and the preaching of Christmas to us this morning is that God cuts us off from every hope, from every expectation, from any ground that we can stand on, except Jesus Christ. This can be a very painful process in the life of God's people. You know, it's often the case that people who, especially when they grow up and they live lives of sin, that they realize by the, by the conviction of the Spirit of God, they realize their sin and they, they, they clean up their life. They reform their life. They put away their sins. And they start living a better life. They start attending on church. They start praying. They read their Bibles. They attend to the means of grace. And yet, my friends, God also has to cut them off from that. Why? Because that's still our own work, isn't it? Now, do I not want people to read the Bible and to clean up their lives? Of course. But my friends, when we stand before God, we can stand before him only in the merits, in the righteousness of that little green plant. If any of your hope, if anything you're going to say to God one day is based on anything, anything other than that little green shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, then God, in the experience of your own life of faith, will cut that off. And he'll bring you in your life to rest on Christ alone. 
Now, there are people here who are older and who have grown old in the, in the life of faith who can testify to that, who can speak to those times when God has done that also for them. When they wanted to rest on something that they had done, even if it was a reformation of your own life, as I have mentioned already, God cuts that off. Think of it, my friends. We know that we can't stand before God with our sin. Just like the stump of Assyria. But my friends, there's many of us who think that we can stand before God with our religion. Think with me, friends, about that for a minute. Can you stand before God with your religion? With your church membership? With your faithful reading of the scripture? With your faithful attendance upon the means of grace? Can you plead at any time, my friends, that you've had many spiritual privileges in your life? That you walk closely with God? That you obey his law in every respect? My friends, I bring you back to the temple in Jerusalem. And I ask you to look in the middle of that temple at that proud Pharisee as he says, Lord, you've known everything I've done. You know how I've served you. You know how I've tithed of everything that I possess. What a tall tree he was. Yeah? What a tall tree that Pharisee was. But now I ask you to look in the corner of the temple at the publican who had nothing to say about himself and who only could say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, my friends, the difference between the one was the Pharisee was a tall tree, quite proud of all his religion. But the publican was just an old, dry stump who had nothing less to do than to cast himself upon that little green shoot, that little sprout coming out of the stump of Jesse. That's all he could claim for himself. And my friends, during the time of Advent, I ask you to consider the basis of your religion before God. Is it something that you've done? Or does God still need to cut you off from your own work, to cut you off even from your religion, just as he cut off the children of Israel from relying upon the upon the, the, the glory, the pomp, and the strength of the nation of Israel as it was under David and Solomon. I love these quotes that I found here. The one is from a historian. The first one is about Luther. We just kind of considered this on Reformation Day. But look what this historian writes about Luther. He says, He wished to base his life for time and for eternity upon a rock. But all supports that were recommended to him fell to pieces in his hands, and the ground trembled beneath his feet. Isn't that a beautiful thing, my friends? Now, I'm not saying it's a comfortable thing, but what a beautiful thing when God takes everything that we're relying on and he cuts it off. All the ground that we're standing on and he cuts it off. All our own works and all our own merits. Oh, Luther, he did much more than any of us has ever done. You can be sure of that. But God showed Luther that it was a sandy foundation. And that if his house was built on his own works and on his own merits, it was going to come crashing down. He cut him off. And this quote from John Newton. Newton writes, While we are in this world, we shall groan being burdened. I wish you to long and breathe after greater measures of sanctification. 
But we are sometimes betrayed into a legal, remember that, a legal spirit, which will make us labor in the very fire to little purpose, that is the fire of suffering. If we find deadness and dryness stealing upon us, our only relief is to look to Jesus, to his blood for pardon, to his grace for strength. We can work nothing out of ourselves. To pour, that is to study over our own evils, will not cure them. But he who was typified by the brazen serpent, remember that story in the Old Testament, right, when the serpent was put on the pole. He who is typified by the brazen serpent is ever-present, lifted up to our view in the camp, and one believing sight of him will do more to restore peace to the conscience and life to our graces than all our own lamentations and resolutions. You see that, my friends? One believing look, says Newton, to that little sprout coming out of the stump of Jesse will do more for our life of faith than all the exercises that we can put ourselves to. And this last one is from Shaw. The sole secret of sanctification is that Christ is our life and that henceforth it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. It is by the daily dwelling in him and he in us, whereby his will becomes ours and his strength ours, that the new man is put on after the image of him that created him and that the daily transfiguration takes place, which alone makes human life sublime. My friends, I don't mean to say from that last quote that we never have to, we never have to try or do anything, put forth any effort. Of course, we need to agonize to enter into the kingdom of God, right? We, we know that in Scripture. But it's all about the starting point. You see, my friends, if we try to stand before God as, as a great and wonderful tree, that God cuts down. Because God will have all the glory of our salvation. But when we, as an old, dry stump, put all our trust in that little sprout, now we are in a position to work and to work hard for the Lord. That's very different, isn't it? We work from that position of, I am nothing, and Christ is everything. Now, from that starting point, I set out to run the race that's before me. And so many people, as Newton said, have a legal spirit. And that can come into our own heart, too. Where we begin to see our religion as something we do to keep in favor with God. Or even to earn God's favor. What a terrible spirit that is, my friends. And how, what, what, a, what a betrayal that is of that little green sprout coming out of the stump of Jesse. It's a betrayal of the cross of Christ. My friends, if you're such a tall, proud tree... And what need would you have of Christ in the first place? Well, my friends, this is also a preparatory service for the Lord's Supper. And how beautifully this fits with our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because next week, the call will go forth. And it's going to go something like this. Are there any old, dry stumps in this church? who have been cut off to everything in themselves and who need everything that that little green sprout has to offer. My friends, for such ones, there's a place for you here at this table. Because on this table, my friends, is broken bread and poured out wine, a broken body and shed blood. 
For those who have nothing in themselves to offer. For those who in themselves are utterly guilty and deserve to be cast out of God's presence forever and forever. But for such old dry stumps, God has a little sprout. The Spirit of the Lord comes on that sprout and gives it amazing strength so that the death of Christ can take away all sins. My friends, I've tried to say it before in this church. We do not approach the Lord's table. We do not take our place there as converted Christians. I know that may sound a little paradoxical because don't we need to be saved to partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, of course. But my friends, we come to the Lord's Supper, we take our place at that table as lost sinners, as dry stumps who need everything that Christ has done in his death and resurrection for us. If we partake of the Lord's Supper, if we approach the Lord's Supper as converted Christians, as those who have so much religion, why then we're just like a tall tree. We're standing tall and strong in the forest of our own works and our own boasting and of our own pride. Is that you this morning? Is that me? Maybe you're an elder this morning. Maybe you're a deacon. And you're a tall tree. But my friends, you don't come to the Lord's table as an elder or as a deacon or as an office bearer. I don't come to the Lord's table as a preacher. I come exactly as you come. As a lost and guilty sinner who needs everything that is portrayed before us on that table. So I ask you again this this morning, my friends, how many of us are old, dry stumps? That's a humbling That's a humbling thing, isn't it, to think about? That's not how I want to think about myself. But that's what God says this morning. That's the message of Advent. And it's the message of the Lord's Supper. My friends, if you you will have any room in your own soul for that baby that lies in the manger at Bethlehem, then you have to become a dry stump. Otherwise, Christmas is just about family and friends and presents and trees and, and good times. What an empty Christmas, my friends. What a terribly empty Advent season that would be. But if God, by the power of his spirit, would make us to be a dry stump, then we would have need for that baby in the manger. And that little green sprout would become to us infinitely precious. And we never could live without him. I pray that for you, my friends, and I pray it for me. That when the call goes forth, do this in remembrance of me. That God would find also in our midst many dry stumps ready to partake of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ to his glory. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I do draw near to you with each of our friends here gathered with us, all of your people. And Lord, we confess honestly, sincerely before you this morning that you, by the power of your spirit, And by your saving grace in our life have cut us off from everything that we could boast of. All our works and all our religion. Lord, it all lays at our feet as just an old dry stump. But we confess to you this morning, Lord, that there is that little green shoot, that little sprout. That shall grow up as a branch before you and shall bear fruit because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. And upon that one, Lord, we take hold this morning. We say with the publican. 
We say with all your people, Lord, we say with our, our fathers and forefathers who went on before us, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord, our, our, our religion never rises above it. We have nothing else to offer to you. And I pray, O oh God, that this Advent season would be a rich thing for us, to rejoice in God, our Savior, to put our trust in the hope of Israel, to put our trust in the one who has said, look unto me, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then this day, keep us close to you, and may this season be a a feast for our souls as we come to feast on the bread of life and to rejoice in God our Savior. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands this day. Also, will you bless us this evening as we return again. We pray, O Lord, that you'd give us a good hour of worship together. Bless our time of fellowship together. We pray for the Sunday school and catechism classes. Lord, we also lift up the preparation for the Christmas program. We pray, Lord, that your blessing would rest upon all these things and that the Christ child would be born in our hearts by faith, that we might rejoice in him all the days of our life. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, at this time, we will read the form of the preparatory form for the Lord's Supper. You can find that in the Forms and Prayers book. And that will be on page 37. Page 37, where we read in the first heading here, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and we read as follows. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord, as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, that everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart, 
to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely, as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul. Those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives, all those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to this supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ, apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. We'll stop there and we'll take that up again next week. Let's turn now in our hymnal and sing number 425. 425. Jesus, lover of my soul, Let me to thy bosom fly, while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Let's sing the four verses of number 425 in the blue hymnal.